0: Welcome to Eurodollar University with Jeff Snyder. My name is Emil Kalanowski, and we are joined by a very special guest, Alfonso Pecatiello. Alfonso, you write a blog post at Substack, is that right? That's correct. Hi, guys. But what would possibly qualify you to write at Substack? They have extremely high standards. Why would anyone want to hear what you have to say at the macro compass? Surely you've never run a gigantic
1: Money portfolio have you no yes actually I, I have but the real reason why they should read my blog is because of the t-shirt can, can you actually <laughs> read that
0: for the people that are <laughs> on audio just podcasts it says "Quote: central banks print bank reserves not money Jeff you've met your
2: twin I know I, I we were just talking off air try, I'm trying to convince Alfonso of some way that we can license the shirt and then you distribute it to our audience it's in any way possible because it's I think it's oh, a fantastic well, shirt
1: thank you guys uh for a more formal introduction I am the <laughs> guy behind the twitter handle at macro alf my full name is Alfonso Peccatiello. I know it's very Italian sounding I am Italian and uh, I used to run a 20 billion dollar portfolio for a European bank until a couple of months ago Then decided to make the jump to provide financial education, macro insights, and some trade ideas as well. Why not? That's what I do in my newsletter, The Macro Compass. And uh, very nice to be here, Emil and Jeff. Pleasure.
0: It's our pleasure, Alfonso. Tell us, what is your most recent article about? I heard you on the Gammon Show, and you were telling, George, that you wanted to use this platform as an education to teach people what it's like to be in the side of the, the beast. The belly of the Beast where you're the trader that Jeff and I are always talking about, creating money. Is that what you're teaching your huge audience, how money creation and financial flows actually take place outside of the economic textbook?
1: Yeah, so the idea, Emil, is to provide people with an understanding of the monetary system first. That's what Jeff and you guys have been done in terms of financial education in a fantastic way over the last few years, but I feel there is need for more boys about that topic. And so if you don't understand how the monetary system and the credit system works today, including the euro dollar system, you are missing the very stepping stones to have a global macro view, a well-informed global macro view. And then on top of that, of course, I managed risk and a portfolio in the past. So I have also an understanding of liquidity and flows and how to manage your risks really running a portfolio. So I strive to give financial education and macro insights to people, but starting from the very foundation, which is the monetary system. What kind of portfolio
0: did you run? I'm guessing it was bonds, but was it more than bonds? What sort of products did you invest in, trade in? Who did you deal with? Do you know Mario Draghi?
1: (laughs) I love this question. (laughs) So it was a $20 billion portfolio, mostly fixed income. And for fixed income, I mean... The very basic of, let's say, the, the collateral and the liquidity system, that's government bonds and semi-government bonds. So I'm talking about supranational agencies, government guaranteed sort of bonds. Bank reserves. I was literally managing bank reserves. That's cool. And which is uh, nothing else than a couple of digits deposited at the central bank. Nothing special, but they qualify as HQLA instruments in a bank treasury portfolio. We can talk about that in the future. And then credits. Also, those qualify as high-quality liquid assets and equities, too, for a small portion of the portfolio. Mostly bonds, though, for a short answer to your question, and bank reserves.
2: Isn't that funny, though, Alfonso, how you have something like equities can qualify as high-quality liquid assets? Because I thought we were past all that, weren't we? Wasn't that Basel Three's point? It was we're going to have only high-quality liquid assets. And I wonder how many people in the public would think... Equities are high quality liquid assets that in an emergency, we're going to depend on these as to keep banks stocked with liquid assets. I mean, one of those things, right?
1: (laughs) That's a very valid point. And actually, the uh, equity mandate in a high quality liquid asset portfolio is a very difficult one to engineer. There are a lot of rules you need to respect for equities to qualify in that pool of liquid assets banks should own to counter a liquidity outflow, a deposit outflow, a stress scenario. The fun stuff is that even decades later, you can still work around these rules in a relatively simple way. So this is very technical, but I just want to tell the audience that one of the requirements for an equity to qualify as HQLA is that it doesn't have to experience a drawdown of 40% on a 30-day rolling basis, at least over the last... 10 years, let's say, and more other, let's say, um, requirements. The cool thing is if a company goes IPO tomorrow, it doesn't have a 10-year trading history where you can stress test that. So as soon as it qualifies for the other requirements, a new IPO company can be eligible for HQLAs. I mean, some of these rules are absolutely mesmerizing, but, you know, you can work around those.
2: They're not really meant for essentially guaranteeing a bank's liquidity, right? It's mostly about placating the public and making the public feel reassured that we have all these complex rules in place that you don't have to worry about banks anymore. There will be no more Lehman's because they have a the stock of high quality liquid assets of all kinds and they're very smart people running these portfolios. So it doesn't matter if it's equities or anything else involved just realize that we fixed the 2008 problem. That's I think that's essentially what it's all about. I mean, imagine the
1: Eurozone is a fragmented place with 18 different countries running 18 different fiscal policies and one central bank responsible to find one aggregate monetary policy, which fits the whole spectrum, right? I mean, so just to start, it's a very complex and unstable system. And what the regulators have thought there, Jeff and Emil, is that Basically, if you want to own government bonds as part of your high-quality liquid assets, you could own a German bond or a Greek bond. Quite two different animals, both from a liquidity and a you know credit perspective, yeah. and from a purely regulatory-driven metric. So, high-quality liquid assets both would qualify as HQLA assets with no haircuts. On top of that, they also eliminated capital requirements of late. So, if you are a euro bank that owns a, a Greek government bond. You would have no liquidity haircuts on these HQLAs and no risk weights as well, no capital to attach against that bond. So it will be treated from a regulatory perspective, basically the same as a German bond. So you can understand these rules are really more cosmetic than anything else.
2: Are you saying there's a difference between Greek and German bonds? (laughs) Are you actually saying that? We're not supposed to say that. They're supposed to be treated exactly the same way. Yes, that's
1: the what the regulator wants, but actually there is still a difference, which is reflected in the price, <laughs> yeah. which is the spread, although those spreads are compressing, as we all know. Because what people yeah. I think fail to understand is the impact of on QE of QE on these HQLA portfolios is very interesting and we can, you know, delve into that. But bank reserves they
2: Oh absolutely delve into, I into it alone.
1: So please tell us. Yeah. Think of this, guys. I mean, as I say here, and Jeff and Emil know as well, central banks don't print money. They do print bank reserves, though, right? So probably you've heard this a gazillion times from Jeff. I don't want to repeat it for too long, but when central banks do QE, they expand their balance sheet on the liability side, they print a new reserve out of thin air. And on the asset side, they acquire a bond from the private sector. The private sector Tends to be in most cases, they do this via dealers, but the ultimate owner of these bonds existing in the system are in most cases financial institutions. And so banks, where I used to work in the past, are one of those. So these banks basically have these bonds absorbed, taken away from them, and they now have instead a bank reserve. So the balance sheet of the private sector that didn't extend, it just got swapped in its composition. Sorry, guys, you've heard it a gazillion times, but I just want to make an intro here. And it's important to understand. Actually, two things. The first is-
2: No, I think about, we need to reiterate this point over and over again, because there are still people who believe, you know, central banks, bank reserves are the same. It's money printing, balance sheet expansion, all that. There's more times we can say it's an asset swap, the better.
1: Let's say I was a bank and I had on the asset side, 100 bonds and 20 reserves before this QE. And now QE takes these bonds away. And instead of 120, I maybe have 80 and 40. Just to make numbers, right? We always sum up to 120. The composition has changed. Now comes the interesting part. From an HQLA, from a liquidity perspective, regulatory liquidity perspective, I am exactly in the same position as I was before. I had a bond which most likely qualified as a liquidity instrument and bank reserves do qualify as well. So nothing changed. What did change is the fact that the aggregate private sector, let's say the banking system, had to give away bonds that were yielding something. They were delivering credit spread, which is what bank treasuries actually want to get from these bonds rather than the entire yield. They normally just take the credit spread out, but this credit spread is now gone. I sold it back. I had to sell it to central banks. There's always a clearing price for which this QE at the end of the day gets delivered to the system. And I now have an inert item, literally. I mean, the only thing I can do with this bank reserve is round about nothing. I can deposit it back to my local central bank or. I can find another bank to try and dump this bank reserve too, but trust me, the other bank probably will not want this inert item for which it can do nothing unless qualify for liquidity, which by the way, also a bond does, with the difference that this reserve most likely yields absolutely nothing, and what people miss is that banks and the private sector on the asset side, they need bonds not only for yield, but also for hedging risks on the liability side. If you're a bank and you have bank deposits, most likely on your liability side, you have a lot of those. There are some systems, pretty simplistic ones, but there are some systems that estimate what is the interest rate risk of these deposits? What is the duration risk? How long are they going to stick around? How long is my liability side in terms of interest rate risk? They get estimated they're like five years or six years, four years. There are some models. If I don't buy bonds on the asset side or I don't have an instrument to hedge this risk, I'm inherently exposed to this rotation of interest rate risks on the liability side. Reserves don't hedge me for that. Reserves don't get me any return. They only qualify as a liquidity item, and I can try to lend those to somebody else in the banking system. That's all I can do with those.
2: And the other banks in the banking system, they have the reserves already, too. So it's not like they're short of reserves. Everybody has reserves. It's, you know, the uh, what do they call it? The doctrine of abundant reserves. It, yeah. it is literally true. Everybody has reserves, which means we don't really need to, to trade them. No. It's funny, you know, you talk about the asset side versus the liability side. And I think that's an underappreciated point, too. And that's one of the reasons why I'm glad you're here as somebody who did this. Your liability side versus your asset side, the asset side versus liability side, it's not like they're completely separate. You're always doing things. In light of one side or the other, if you're doing something on the asset side, it's usually in relation to what's going on the, or what you expect to happen on the liability side and vice versa. You always have to match liquidity, with, you know, liquid liabilities with your asset structure. And so it's not just one thing or the other. It's not just like we can separate QE into these nice little theoretical you know, T diagrams where you say, oh, QE is this and that. It's a complex arrangement of very almost you know, competing interests at times. And I think that's, people need to understand that there's always this dance between assets and liabilities that are related.
1: And the latest thing that I heard for which reserves have to be inflationary, I mean, they haven't been for the last 25 years, but Jeff and Emil, they really must be, (laughs) you know, these reserves must be inflationary. They have to. The last theory I've heard is that, yes, but the bank can phone up the central bank and ask for these reserves to be swapped into physical cash. So which means that this physical (laughs) cash then circulates. and
2: Hand-to-hand, right? Yeah, hand-to-hand currency hasn't been a thing since maybe the 1920s, but yeah, okay, that's going to (laughs) happen. Let's analyze
1: the whole thing, right? I mean, I am a commercial bank, and today about 90-95% of transactions happen digitally in the economy. But let's say that I'm really brave and I want to have... The reserves instead of in digital format at the central bank, I want to have them really stashed in a you know in bill format somewhere in physical cash format in a vault. All right. So then I'm gonna phone my central bank, and this swap is gonna happen where reserves are gonna be swapped into physical cash, and then I as a bank will have you know to store this cash somewhere, and then people will be able to literally come at the ATM in the theory that I'm hearing right and withdraw all this cash and literally make use of this previously labeled reserves and now cash to go and buy bread or other item in the CPI basket such that inflation will go through the roof. Wait a second. The step where the person withdraws the cash means they literally eliminated the bank deposit from the system and now they have cash. So also these guys, this is a swap. So you're swapping the form of existing money, which is a bank deposit for another form of money that now you wanted to have in physical format, the amount of spendable money in the system hasn't changed. It only changed its its format from a digital format to a physical format. So I still don't see the point because the entire amount of spendable bank deposits or spendable money, they're mostly bank deposits, but the spendable bank deposits hasn't changed anyway.
0: Well, Mr. Draghi or Ms. Lagarde would say that what they've done is they're forcing you, Alfonso, now to take your risk in your portfolio and move it down the spectrum towards more risky because you have these inert reserves on your balance sheet. You're very frustrated, you can't balance, you can't hedge against your depository liabilities. So they are counting on you now to take on more risk and that presumably will encourage economic activity. Is that what you
1: did? Is that what happens? Is that what you believe? Ah, so this is a very interesting question. I would like to ask this question to my risk manager. I mean, okay, okay. So, <laughs> there it is. The point here for the audience is that, according to my risk manager, Italy, Greece, mortgage backed securities, CLOs, junk bonds, they don't change their credit worthiness if there are more or less bank reserves in the system. That doesn't change. Ease assessment on the risk limitable will grant portfolio managers. That's really changed because there are more bank reserves in the system. So from a big picture perspective, this is something to consider. The other thing to consider, though, Emil and Jeff, which is important, is what I call the theta of bank reserves. So the time cost, effectively, of sitting on these inert bank reserves for several, several quarters in a row without recycling, or recomposing your asset side into something that actually delivers some yield, hedges some risks is quite relevant so the time effect is strong especially on the cfos on the treasurers on the guys responsible for the bottom line so if qe swaps my high quality liquid asset portfolio from bonds to zero bonds and 100 reserves and at some point i'm not able to generate any return on this part of the asset side of the balance sheet which generally is about 15 percent, it's a relevant part of the asset side of the balance sheet of a commercial bank After a bit of time, with a bit of theta effect, I will have some taps of my shoulder. I will have somebody telling me, can we take some risks, please? Alf, we need to make some money here. Some money, sorry, some carry. Some money is a bit too much, but I need some coupons. Can you please get them for me? So the risk manager will probably be a tiny bit more lenient. But what's really relevant is that once I've exchanged all my bonds for bank reserves, there will be this coupon carry effect. That kicks in and then my CFOs and treasurers will want me to take some risks again, but it's not as a gigantic effect as people think it to be. It's something to be considered in an advanced way as everything is when it comes to monetary policy and the monetary system.
2: Is it your experience with that, the portfolio effect, you know, the theoretical channel of QE, as they take bonds away from you, is it your experience that you sort of replace them with the same kind of bonds that you sold to the central bank? Yeah, I mean you're looking for coupons, but a lot of at least in you know what Emil and I do have uncovered as evidence, a lot of banks simply just, you know, they're generating churn, selling safe and liquid assets to the central bank and QE, and then just replacing them at whatever market price they can afford, usually a little bit less. So they're basically generating a small carry trade only on the QE transaction. And they're not really moving further down the risk curve, you know, chasing coupons. So the experience is mixed.
1: Some It really depends from the, from the entity at the end of the day, Jeff. It also depends from the starting position. There is a lot of accounting into these two. So when you sell a bond from a, a portfolio of a bank treasury, you generally realize all the future gains that you had accumulated as the difference between your entry credit spread and your selling credit spreads. What you do, though, is you lose those future coupons because you you don't have the bond anymore, right? So you made a budget that was assuming to have certain coupons, but now those coupons are gone and all your gains are upfront, right? They're all now, today.
2: Yeah, that's gain on sale accounting, right?
1: Exactly. Now, the, the problem is that banks are under margin pressure, especially in Europe. So what people hate at the very top is to see that you make a lot of money now and then they can't get out to the to the shareholders and to tell them that your net interest margins or the margins you will be able to generate over the future looks sustainably good so also they will want you to try and i mean ideally what they want you to make is money now and also preserve the carry down the road which is impossible (laughs) normally speaking unless you take some additional risks those are some entities. There are some other entities that just say, look, the HQLA portfolio is just a liquidity portfolio. I'm forced to have it from a regulatory perspective. So I'm just going to, you know, fit the regulatory metrics and the liquidity metrics. And I'm not going to see this as a profit and loss generating activity, but rather as a, you know, as a liquidity. Buffer. The it, cost of yes. doing
2: business, right? The cost of staying in, in uh, regulatory yes. favor.
1: And so the, the other thing which you saw A lot of real money players, as as I call them, so asset managers, pension funds, and bank treasuries do, when the imbalance between the amount of reserves in the system and the amount of collateral in the system starts to get skewed too much towards one or the other, so in this case, it's way too many reserves against an amount of collateral gets thrown to the system, which is dwindling as we go by. When this imbalance becomes too big, then repo levels start to reflect this. So obviously, if there are too many reserves or, sorry, guys, cash, I'm quoting for people not seeing me, there's a lot of <laughs> quoting here. Spare yes, quotes. way too many. Yeah. So
2: yes. a lot of
1: cash, which is reserves or inert bank deposits, uh, chasing, let's say, potentially chasing the same amount of a shrinking amount of collateral, then obviously in a repo transaction, you get rewarded if you lend your collateral away and you get back these reserves, which is a repo transaction at the end of the day, right? And so you start seeing, Jeff and Emil, these pension funds and even the central bank reserve managers, which normally have very little incentive to make money, but they literally are there to preserve liquidity in their effect reserves. You start to see them engage in repo, reverse repos, something that we hadn't experienced before 2014, 2015, where QE started in Europe as well and then continued in the US. So QE unlocks so many of these interconnecting Items from accounting to regulation, to liquidity buffers, to other real is doing repos and reverse repo, it's really a complex beast. Alfonso, it's my sense that you and your colleagues
0: are very well versed in the regulations, the accounting, the legal requirements, and that if there was money to be made, you would know how to make it. You would be pursuing that return. But we're running up against this idea of the risk manager and the risk in the wider system. Jeff and I always say that it's not so much the regulations that have kept banks down. You tell me if that's different in Europe, but that the risk return profile has changed since 2008, since 2011, 12, 2014, 15, and now most recently. What do you think of our thesis? Not so much the regulations, it's just the risk, and no matter what sort of peacocking the central banks do? That's not going to encourage you and your colleagues to go go into the real economy, extend loans, look for money because it's safer just to, to make a few ba- a one basis
1: point here, two, three, instead of going for it. You are right. Just to make it very simple, but if I need to elaborate a bit more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> banks don't lend reserves, obviously, so Japan is a crystalline example if you need an empirical one, but it's it's simple theory, but if you needed one, then in Japan there were so many reserves from the nineties onwards, and bank loans shrunk most of the times during the same period where reserves actually expanded, which is counterintuitive to the theory under which banks lend reserves. Banks lend when there are let's say three factors that align the first is. When they have a loan yield that compensates them for the capital they need to attach against this loan and for the credit worthiness and the risk ta- for the credit worthiness of the borrower, which reflects into the risk they're taking while making loan. So it's basically three things together. It's the, the private sector that will want to lever up. Banks can't lend out of nowhere. I mean, yes, they create money out of, of, out of thin air, but they need to find a recipient for this loan, which is the private sector. Contrary to fiscal deficits, under which the government basically unilaterally decides to throw more or less net assets at the private sector, cutting taxes, raising taxes, sending checks, withdrawing checks, it's basically almost a unilateral decision. When a bank lends, it's not a unilateral decision. It needs actually a borrower that is willing to lever up. So that's the first thing. Then the second is that the borrower needs to be credit worthy enough Otherwise, actually, the let's say the loan application doesn't even get you know looked at. There are certain metrics you need to fit in the first place. The third one is that the loan yield needs to compensate you enough, both for the risk you're taking and needs to generate enough return on equity, which means the capital you attach at the loan needs to be rewarded in a certain way. And now look at today, Emil and Jeff. So today we have a private sector, which is levered up, depending on the economy you look at, but somewhere around 200 to 300% of GDP. Or GDP is not even the right metric to look at. You should look at disposable incomes. And that's probably even worse in terms of absolute leverage. The system holds together as real interest rates, equilibrium real interest rates are going lower and lower and lower and lower. So the cost of borrowing becomes cheaper and cheaper and those high outright levels of leverage seem acceptable. From a bank perspective, though, if you file an application with your net debt to EBITDA, if you're a corporate, which is seven times, eight times, nine times, I'm sorry, but you're still not a very good candidate. And you have a lot of these companies out there today, so the credit worthiness doesn't look good. Even if it were to look good, then you probably would try to be lending to highly rated corporates that are flush already with cash and or they don't need it and or they don't have a productive outlet for this investment so they don't even try and think about levering up they don't see the reason for doing that but let's assume you find one of those let's assume then when you when you find these guys you look at the loan yield which is the result of risk-free interest rates and credit spreads and both of them are incredibly tight so the combination the loan yields are very low and the capital required that you need to attach behind these loans has not gone down because regulation actually still forces you to own a certain amount of capital against these loans. Basically, telling you that however you look at all the sides of the equation for banks to lend are looking pretty bad. And so, bank, the amount of bank reserves changes absolutely zero in this assessment because banks do need the reserves to be able to transact against each other and settle against each other at the end of the day. But that is generally a relatively low amount. And today there is. And it's not like if you incrementally increase this amount, then banks will be happy to lend to a company which is overlevered the horrible loan yield with some capital to attach it. I'm sorry, but that's not how it works.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. It's really the interbank settling process is a lack of balance sheet efficiency, because that's really what you're talking about, right? Alfonso is the amount of capital and the amount of return you can generate per unit of capital, let's say, it's called a unit, unit of balance sheet capacity An expanding balance sheet capacity based on all of these complex factors, including the fact that you know the risk manager is not going to like the profile of the credits you're trying to lend to. And then you have to decide, can I charge a, enough of an interest rate to make this even economically viable? Well, probably even if you wanted to, the prospective borrower you're trying to lend money to probably can't even pay that. So, there's really not even a reason to go to 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 go further, and so it's almost like this vicious cycle where we're stuck. The only game in town are the big companies or the government bonds and the government issuing debt because they're the only ones that are even creditworthy in this environment, and they're the only ones that make it at least somewhat realistic, given these constraints on balance sheet capacity and balance sheet efficiency really is what it really comes down to is balance sheet efficiency and you're right. It doesn't matter if you have a ton of bank reserves or not. If you don't have the balance sheet efficiency, zero bank reserves, a hundred, you know, lots of bank reserves makes absolutely no difference. And I think the converse of that is if we were in a normal environment where everything is working well, it wouldn't matter bank reserves either. Because if you thought this guy, this company has a really good profile, they're willing to pay the interest rate that makes it worthwhile. We don't care if we have enough bank reserves, we'll find the liabilities match the asset. And so, it's, it's, bank reserves are completely immaterial on both sides of the equation, whether it's deflationary circumstances like now, or inflationary circumstances, or modestly inflationary circumstances like before the crisis, because banks will do what they need to do if there's a profitable reason for them to do it.
1: Completely right. And the easiest way to look at it is uh, central banks are the clearinghouse for commercial banks. That's for me the easiest way to look at those. So, banks will take their actions and central banks via regulation mostly and some incentive scheme can try to manage that they generally are very ineffective in this management process so commercial banks will decide on the basis of what's economic for them to do at the end of the day they will do it and then if they need more reserves the central bank which is the clearing house of commercial banks will supply will be basically forced by its role to supply reserves after the fact that's how it, it's not the other way around actually
2: yeah, right. And that's a hugely important point that I wish people would really and maybe it's it's really hard to intuitively understand what we're talking about. Maybe that's the stumbling but You're right. The reserves are later. It's the action that takes place first in the banking system that prioritizes everything the bank does, not what the central bank does. And even in the low reserve regime that we had in the US, of course, before Lehman Brothers, where there were practically no reserves in the US, banks, you know, they they had no trouble operating because bank reserves were never the problem it was bank balance sheet efficiency and bank balance sheet risk management and you know like like we said before the other constraint and i do want to talk to you about repo and reverse repo and collateral and all that stuff if we get a chance to do that but you know to finish up on bank reserves a little bit it's a little bit different in europe than it is in the us right pre crisis there were more bank reserves than there were in the United States where there are practically zero. But that didn't make any difference either, right? There was no difference in regime between operation in Europe versus the U.S. You're right. Nothing else to add. Perfect. I I see
1: Emil very impatient to ask a question.
2: That's just my tick (laughs) because I need to have my
1: cappuccino well before dinner. Right, Alfonso? I'm not a barbarian. Um, You should know, Emil, that cappuccino is forbidden in Italy anywhere after 11 AM. So when you say dinner and cappuccino, then my, my grandmother, I can hear her screaming and no, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Of course. He's
0: not kidding. Jeff on Twitter. He, he was talking about, he was at a restaurant, ladies and gentlemen, you've got to follow Alfonso on Twitter at macro You're going to learn all about bank reserves and how it is to become a real life bond trader. And also how not to commit a sin against Western civilization As Alfonso was explaining, he was at a restaurant (laughs) and the table next door ordered a cappuccino at after dinner. And thank God there was a good Southern Italian chef that told that customer to drop dead. He didn't get that cappuccino.
1: No, he refused the order as a proper Southern Italian chef should do. Just don't accept the order in the first place. Well,
0: I'm a dirty American, Alfonso, and I'm suffering because I haven't had my cappuccino yet. I'll follow your lead, Alfonso. <laughs> Alfonso, I have a quest. I had my hopes were raised that we would break free of this whirlpool of quantitative easing, this never-ending whirlpool to the bottom of the ocean. During the crisis, during the Corona crisis, when governments started instructing, commanding their banks, their private banks, to lend to businesses, small to medium-sized enterprises, big businesses. And those banks would then receive a guarantee from the government for these loans, depending on the country, depending on the guaranteed amount. Some would be 100%, some less. I don't know what it was. And then, so this was happening during 2020. And in the beginning of 2021, Isabel Schnabel, a a key member of the ECB board, she gave a speech that I thought was very important. I thought was key. I thought, yes, finally a path out. And it was called the Sovereign Bank Corporate Nexus, which is basically what I just described. The government would tell the bank, you must lend, find someone to lend to. We'll guarantee it. What do you think of that idea? And as far as I know, that never took off. I was so disappointed because I thought this was a chance to get real money out into the system in some new innovative way. What
1: do you think of the, that whole idea, the whole project? Okay, so there is a country, a very large one, which is basically already doing this for about two to three decades. <laughs> and that's China. Yeah. So okay. China basically is using um, the good old credit window that existed in Japan as well Mm -hmm. in the 80s, where they literally walk to commercial banks, well, not commercial in China, they're rather state-owned banks, and they just tell them, okay, you got to lend X to Y and Z. Now, I don't care at what trade, just find the borrowers and lend them money. So basically create credit out of thin air to sector A, B, and C. So... The question I would have is, is this a regime change? It depends from which angle do you look at. I haven't seen Chinese inflation go to 10%. Uh, not to my um, to my knowledge, actually, inflation in China is rather stable, around 2 to 3%. If you want to look at it from a cycle perspective, that's a very interesting uh, part. And so in Western democracies, it's much more debatable whether a centralized Entity can walk to commercial banks and effectively force them to lend. They can give incentives to commercial banks to lend temporarily. In Europe, we have a program which is called TLTRO, Targeted Long Term Refinancing Operations, where basically the central bank is trying to pay commercial banks to keep at least their loan book flat, not even to increase it on a year on year basis. If you just don't decrease the amount of loans, they're literally going to pay you a 50 basis point fee. For doing that right certain banks have struggled even to keep that loan book stable not to increase it mm. now if the government or a commercial bank of or whoever or sorry a central bank or whoever from uh, let's say the policymaking standpoint would apply this system on a permanent basis they would basically be taking over the credit initiative from the private sector which is commercial banks So they would now merge the credit creation process from governments. They can already run deficits, basically, in their own currency, extend their own balance sheet, and throw net assets to the private sector. They would now be able also, from the lending platform point of view, to generate new credit from a centralized standpoint, which today they are not able to do, as we discussed in the past. Now... The point is, all right, if they do this, they are a superman, a superpower. They can create credit. They can redirect it where they want. I still have the same question. Will the private sector want this credit? Yes, you can slosh them as much credit as you want. But what are you going to do with this credit? What is the productive outlet for investments? Where is that? You can't create productive outlets for investments even if you force the private sector to absorb all this credit creation you still need an outlet for these investments. And so in Japan, with credit windows from commercial banks and the government's printing deficit, after the, the, basically the boom cycle of the Nikkei and um, the real estate sector in Japan, the private sector has refused this newly created credit. So the government said, here is your fiscal deficit. And the private sector said, I don't want it. If you throw money to me, I'm going to de-leverage. I'm going to take my existing That and i'm gonna pay them off which is basically destroying money so even if you're creating new credit at an incremental pace is very hard to do a and even if you manage to do that there is the other side of the equation which are the borrowers what do the borrowers want and that question is not answered yet in this in this whole you know discussion we're having
2: that's why they call it the deflationary mindset in Japan, right, Alfonso? It's you know it's the, what good is adding throwing more credit at a situation where you know what is the old joke in Japan? They've paved over you know the every river there has a as a sidewalk, and every third rate city has two or three first rate museums, and every government project that have been performed has been performed, and yet here we are in 2022 still talking about the deflationary mindset because there's the two sides of it as you just said the government may be creating credit but in the same sense they're destroying credit in the private sector that nobody seems to appreciate and certainly not the keynesians who tell us the exact opposite of what you said right the keynesians all say it doesn't matter what you do you just throw credit at the problem and magically growth happens yes which we know that's not the case no it's not and so
1: Uh, Looking at the private and the public sector together, merge, they are Mm -hmm. intertwined, they communicate, you need to balance those out. And so in certain jurisdictions, like in America, if you throw a ridiculous amount of credit at the private sector, like the U.S. has done in 2020 and Q1 2021, mark my words, by the way, after Q1 2021, the credit impulse in the U.S. has actually gone down pretty aggressively because where is the new credit being created since Q1 2021? People should understand it's not a one-off process. It's a rolling process. So after Q1 2021, where is the new role of credit? Where is the next impulse? There has been no impulse. Never happened. happened, But between 2020 and Q1 2021, you got to admit that because of what Emil also said, so government guaranteed bank loans were actually quite a thing back then. I mean, if you were a bank, it was like, okay, so the economy is, is basically falling apart. But I run no credit risk, literally almost no credit risk. I mean, the government is telling me, just extend loans. I'm going to guarantee the losses. It's a free lunch. So banks actually engaged in some lending, and the government went with fiscal deficits to an incredible level measured against output gaps or however you want to measure it. And so the combination of these two was a lot of credit being thrown at the private sector. And we have seen the results, obviously. Aggregate demand temporarily throughout 2021 and the first half of 2022, because it works with a bit of a lag, picked up. And back then I had to hear again, this time is different. It's a regime change. Uh, (laughs) Third year yields are going to 6%. Yeah,
2: Yeah, six on the way to 20, right?
1: (laughs) I think 20 is the right number. Yeah. On a more serious note, this was the perfect constellation if you were a bond bear that had traded the 80s, basically. And now after... 30 years, 35 years of a bull market, you're at the last stage of your career and you're sitting and you're saying, ha, I know what's happening here. This is a bear market in bonds. This was the perfect constellation for you. You had the largest ever fastest amount of credit being thrown and the private sector at any point in time in any recorded history. Worldwide exercise being done in large amounts. You had central banks that were behind the curve as they were doing absolutely nothing to tighten monetary conditions despite an incredible pickup in economic growth in 2021. That's the perfect constellation to see risk premium in the curve, to see the curve steepening, to see the long end of the curve pricing in some proper inflation and growth risk premium over the long term. Because you have a lot of credit, you have a strong growth impulse and you have central bank behind the curve supposedly behind the curve. Curve steepness, right? Long end bonds, need you need to price in premiums. Yep. All of this and third year treasury yields could maximum reach two and a half percent. And in the previous cycle, that could maximum reach three and a half percent. And in the previous cycle, this was four and a half. And in the previous cycle, this was five and a half percent. Can you just see what's happening here? Equilibrium rates for the system not to implode are going down and down and down at each cycle and at each iteration of this exercise. And I know that most people don't like it because it's a pretty sober view of the world. But unfortunately, what I learned while managing money is that you cannot trade the hand that you wish you were dealt with. You have to handle the hand you were dealt with literally. And this is the hand we have to trade with.
2: Yeah, it's contrary to monetary policy in theory, where the econometric models that feed us all this stuff, there is no accountability like that. You know, you can't make that mistake, Alfonso. You're managing money. You have to. You've got what you've got. And you can't wish it was better where, um, you know, monetary policymakers can simply conjure up whatever reality they want. They have no skin in the game. And I think, you know, that's an important point, too. But I do want to get to collateral and collateral shortages, and we don't have much time left. Have you now, or have you ever rehypothecated securities? I'm putting you on the spot here. (laughs) Yes, I
1: have. What do you want to know? Tell me. Tell me. What do you want to know?
2: (laughs) No, it's. I think that's you know part of the liquidity profile of the system. Is part of it is you know there was a very different set of circumstances uh, before the the 2008 crisis where all sorts of private label stuff got to be. Essentially treated in repo and retread and rehypothecated and reused and everything else. It's the same uh, basic terms and haircuts as, you know, the safest, best assets. And then those went away in the post crisis and we never replaced them, which put an extreme premium on safe assets. And then as you were saying before, central banks come in and then they take a bunch of those safe assets and lock them away in their own portfolios, which means there's even fewer safe assets out there, which for someone in your position, what does that do to you? So I want to give a figure because
1: we only have a few minutes left, unfortunately, but yes. I am expressing a wish to be back on this fantastic program to discuss only the collateral issue at length. So for now, just a brief intro on the
2: Cliffhanger, we've got a cliffhanger, a genuine cliffhanger here. So if
1: you are in Europe, because we often talk about the US, but I'm European. So there are so little, a rated, high quality collateral assets, and the most famous is the German government bond. If I look at the free floating of German government bonds, so the amount of tradable collateral I can get my hands on when I need this collateral, this is about 10% of the entire stock of German government bond. I want to repeat it, 10%. The remaining 90% is locked somewhere most of it is sitting on the central bank balance sheet the rest is sitting on balance sheet of institutions that do not engage in repo and reverse repos so if i look at the entire picture i cannot get my hands easily on something that is a collateral with a value that i can trust and it's highly rated what this does is it pushes the value and the yields of these bonds it pushes the value up and the yields of these german government bonds way and way below the term structure for the ecb deposit rates if i own reserves guys i can park those at the central bank and over 10 years i can measure what is the expected return that i will have from depositing this money at the central bank according to the swap market to the forward market there are some prices for that now these reserves i could also choose to own them instead in german government bonds from a liquidity perspective those are pretty much equivalent more or less of course, I can change one into another with a repo transaction. And the fact that this collateral is so scarce makes German government bonds yield way, way, way below the prospective rate of deposit at the, at the European Central Bank, which is a risk-free form of deposit. I actually have to pay a premium, a premium, a pretty large one, if I want to get my hands on this scarce and liquid collateral called a German government bond. That's the type of distortions that, sh- that are created with this um, repo and reverse repos and uh, collateral imbalances that we are seeing.
0: Thank you, Alfonso. We don't want to keep you from your supper. We're going to have a part two. Ladies and gentlemen, if you wanted to get a financial education, macro insights and actionable investment ideas, then you have to go to the macrocompass.substack.com. If you want to learn whether or not the 1974 Chateau Croque Michette was good and whether or not you should have it with a nice hearty earthy meat dish (laughs) at macro
1: alf on twitter thank you emil this endorsement is very much appreciated and it's been a pleasure to be here talking to nice guys like uh, you emil and jeff i am looking forward for part two where we're gonna eviscerate the collateral story with with the king of collateral jeff and emil
2: I can't wait for that. I'm sure most people can't either. And maybe we can work in some Itali- Southern Italian coffee etiquette as well just to make it just to spice it up even more. That's going to be a heater. So yes, this is a genuine cliffhanger. More collateral is coming. Thank you guys for
1: hosting. Me. It's been a pleasure.